0: It's great to be with you guys. Um, If you have a Bible, there's three places we're going to be today, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and then we'll end in Luke 7, refer to a bunch of other passages along the way. Um, But as you're opening your Bibles or your apps, let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word, your word that you tell us will not return void, but that will do all that you have purposed for it. God, you have a purpose for your word this morning, and that purpose sits in this room. It's us, Um, us as a church and us as individuals and us as families. Uh, God, do all that you intend for it. God, whatever is there that are barriers between us and you and between us and submitting to your scriptures, I pray that you, in your love, would break down. Do all that you have intended for us in this time through your scriptures. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. So I wanna give you a thought uh, to start this out to think about that won't seem very profound on the surface and maybe it's not profound at all, but I'm gonna ask you. um, Do you know that this is the only world you get to live in? I'm gonna say it now as a fact. This is all you've got. This is the world you get to live in. There isn't another world that you can live your life in. And I say that for this reason, as we begin to look at the Bible, through this theme of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, specifically as how do we make sense of God's family through this idea of what the biblical narrative, the biblical story teaches of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The reason I say this is the only world you get to live in is to remind you of the fact that if you can't bring real-world questions to the Bible or to any other system of thought, for that matter, and get real world questions answered sufficiently, I would submit to you, trash it. Including the Bible, trash it. I tell people all the time, I didn't grow up in the church. Um, I didn't grow up as a Christian, so I wasn't handed these things. And if somebody said to me, why are you a Christian? My first answer would be, I think, God did this um, in the midst of it. But if I was going to give a more thoughtful answer, I would say because I believe it gives the best explanation to the world that I live in. That every human being that exists, whether you sit in this room as a Christian or you don't, or you're not, you're admittedly not a Christian, you have to make sense of the great things in the world. These moments that you sit in and you go, that was unbelievable. Whether it's your child laughing for the first time or it's watching your kid play sports for the first time, or bring their first paper home, or that moment you have with a friend of yours in which you put on a documentary at Netflix and have a meal together, and you walk out and you go, that was just different. There was something so amazing about it, or it's you looking at a sunset, or you finishing that last draft that you're supposed to draw up at work, and you finish it, and you put the final touches on it, and you just go, man, there's something so good about life, You have to have a system of belief that answers why life can be that good, but at the same time, why life at the same time can be so bad. Why it is that I have a friend right now that's just gone through a stem cell transplant and has cancer when he just has a son a few years old. How do I make sense of that? How do I make sense of losing somebody so dear to me and the gaping hole that's in me not being gone a decade later? How do I make sense of news reports of 2,000 people in Nigeria being slaughtered? If I can't make sense of both what seem to be the heavenly things in the world, that things can't, almost seem like they can't get even better, and also the things that are happening at the very same time that say things can't possibly get worse. If I can't make sense of this human impulse inside of us to look at the news or to open up our news aggregate and feeder and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I don't have a system of belief that's worth believing. And then if you have a system of belief that's worth believing, you better be able to live it in the real world where the rubber really meets the road. That's one of the ways in which Christian theologians and teachers have helped us understand the Bible to make sense of the world is in this idea of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. God made a world and he made it very good. And he looked at it and said, this is incredible. Be fruitful and multiply. That makes all the sense of a connection to what the world would call the spiritual realm, which the Bible calls God, the one true God that makes sense of the craving that you have to be deeply understood and known even by yourself that you're at peace with yourself. The Bible speaks to that, that you were made in the image of God and you can understand what human identity really is. The Bible speaks to the reality of your craving for connection with other human beings and says God made it to be like that. He didn't make you an autonomous individual, but an individual in the midst of a commons, a community, a group of people, a craving for an even Amazing worlds to come of what might come out of the fruit of our hands. That's creation. Fall is the reality of the breakdown of all of those. The division that for some reason I don't feel totally connected to God. I don't even feel totally connected to myself. I don't feel connected to other people and I have hopes for the future but I don't even know if they're rightfully rooted or will ever ultimately come to pass. That's the fall. And yet there's this craving within all of us, no matter what we believe, to fix things, to make things right. The way I'll say it is everybody in the end is an evangelist. Everybody's pronouncing the gospel that they think's gonna make the world a better place. So if you just took politics, for instance, Republicans are trying to make a country more red, Democrats are trying to make it more blue, they think that's the good news and and they're going to espouse it. Every author of a book that they want to have influence upon a world is an evangelist. All of us have this craving within us to fix the world that isn't the way we think it ultimately should be. The Bible begins to answer for me and makes claims upon the world that I go, this makes sense of it. This makes sense of where the rubber meets the road. So it's important to us as we approach the scriptures that we understand this is the only world that we have to live in. This series is meant to look at this idea of God's family through that biblical lens of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So we got to then ask what is God's family? What do we mean by God's family? Well, another way to say that is the church. What's the church? And the Bible would speak very uh, clearly and directly and at times disruptively to many of us to say the church isn't a service you go to on Sunday. That's a gathering of the church. Or the church isn't a building. That's where the church meets. But the church is the sons and daughters of God, the people of God, the family of God. The church is a people, not a place. The church is not a destination, but it's a community. So how do we make sense of the church? Well, the only way to make sense of the church is to ask, what is God doing? What is God doing? Because God is the author of the whole world and he's also the author and the perfecter of our faith. And our faith is what makes us Christians. Christians are what make the church. So what is God almost doing? If he's the author of the church, what is he doing on a grand scale? There's a scholar, Christian scholar, obviously not atheist based upon what he says. And his name's Howard Snyder and he says this about what God is doing. God is doing nothing other than bringing all things and, this, and supremely all people on earth under the headship of Jesus Christ, under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. God, What is God up to? God is doing nothing other than bringing all things, all the, the whole world that he has made, and supremely all the people he has made on earth under the rule and reign, the rightful rule and benevolent, loving reign of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the world God has made. The psalmist in Psalm 24, this um, master poet, David, wrote majority of the psalms and he has this psalm in Psalm 24, um, this phrase where he says this, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Christians believe because the Bible teaches that the world is God's, that our world belongs to God and the fullness thereof. That everything God made to populate and fill the earth, he authored and therefore it is his. Sin at its core, at its absolute core, if you distilled it all down, is a breaking of the unity between God and man, between God's creation and the God who made it. It's a rebellion of his creatures to the creator saying we want to do it our own way and it wrecked havoc, unleashed hell upon the wholeness of the entire world. That's sin. That even though the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the fullness of thereof and the earth does not recognize that it's so. And supremely, we don't human beings don't recognize that and we experience then the catastrophic results of being disconnected from God the catastrophic results upon ourselves upon our relationships with other people and on our relationship and interaction with the wider world so what is God ultimately up to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 says his plan Ephesians 1.10, his plan was that in the fullness of time that he would reunite heaven and earth that were separated because of sin. He would unite it together in Christ. That a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. So you see, God's plan is centered on Jesus and his plan is to reconcile and restore all of creation, all of human life in Jesus. Christ. So there's no reconciliation, there's no restoration, there's no reunification outside of Christ. It's all to be reconciled in Christ. So if we're going to understand what the church is, we've got to understand that the church comes into that plan. The church comes into the plan of God reconciling and restoring all of creation and all of human life. So here's what we're gonna see as we work through today in these three passages, is that for us as Christians to understand our role in God's family through the lens of redemption is that we were called to a purpose, one. We were called to that purpose together and that we were called to that purpose together in love. So we were called to a purpose, called together and called in and for love. So let's get after it in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12 uh, will show us very clearly that we are called for a purpose. There's this man named Abraham and he is the father of the faith. I didn't grow up in the church, but I've learned since I've now become a Christian that many little kids sing this song about Abraham where they pump their arms and their knees and they sing the song, Father Abraham and many sons. And then they can all march around the room. Many sons had Father Abraham and I am one of them and so are you. And then I think it says, so let's just praise the Lord, right? I wanna say like, so let's just get down and see all the kids start dancing. That'd be way better. But let's just, <laughs> let's just praise the Lord. But the idea of that is that Abraham is the father of our faith and he was the beginning of something that was so profound that I might call myself one of his sons or daughters, one of his children. Well, where, where does that come from? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, verses two and three, God says to Abraham to leave his country, that where he is comfortable, and he says this, and I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He called Abraham to a purpose. He called Abraham unto himself, The Lord was calling Abraham to leave and trust him, but he called him for a purpose. He said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great. Now, you may go, well, why? Or many of us would just go, great, bless me. Make my name great. And too many of us stop there and don't read the next part, so that you may be a blessing. And then he goes on, so that you may be a blessing to all peoples, all the families of the earth. I think many of us make that mistake. And I think it's true worldwide, but we're just gonna talk about it as Americans and we're just gonna talk about it as Phoenicians and we're just gonna talk about it as Arcadians. Many of us look at that moment God calling us to be children of Abraham coming into his line and we hear him saying, I'm gonna make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'm gonna make you into a great nation, a great family, and I'm gonna bless you and make your name great. And we go, that's what I've always wanted. Greatness of name, blessing, comfort, convenience, safety, security. That's what life's all about, isn't it? And all of a sudden our, our ears got plugged by our own fingers when he said, so that you might be a blessing. We forget that we were called unto a purpose. We forget what our salvation is actually for. And therefore we forfeit the utmost blessing that God has to offer us. This blessing of considering the needs of someone else as more significant than our own. We forfeit the blessing and the richness of Jesus' words that it's actually more blessed to give than it is to receive. It's like this, uh, think of your work and think about your boss and then think about your boss's boss. Now you may go, I am the boss. So think about who it is in your industry that is like the icon. Or if you're not the boss, think about going to the tip-top boss's office. So like if you worked at Intel, it's the president, CEO, head dog of Intel. Or, you know, if you're a musician, it's Bono or whatever. You get it. So imagine you get a call and this boss wants to meet with you. And you go into your boss's office that you've never been in before and you walk in and it's Amazing by anybody's sight. It's unbelievable. There's amazing food in there. There's amazing drinks in there. The furniture's ridiculous. It's huge. It's a corner office that overlooks this beautiful, beautiful view. And you sit down, and your boss looks across the desk and just says, How are you? And you start connecting with your boss on a relational level that's unparalleled. You thought I'd never meet this person and now within seven minutes, it feels like you've never not known them. They are asking you all the questions that you wanna be asked to truly be known. They're telling you about their own life and you develop this unbelievable relationship and you're going, this is unbelievable. I'm developing a relationship with this person. How does this possibly happen? You're thinking it couldn't get any better. And then they say, hey, I want you to, Treat my office like your office. Whenever you're here, whether I'm here or not, I'm gonna give you keys to my office. I'm gonna give you the key fob to get into the building. I'm gonna give you the clearance card to get past our floor. I'm gonna give you the key to my actual office and you can walk in here and I really mean it. I want you to make yourself at home. Kick your feet up, take your shoes off. I don't care if your feet stink. Do it, eat the food, drink the drinks, enjoy the view in fact here's the password to the computers and the ipads you can use the teleconferencing set up whether you want to facetime your family or you want to do work it's yours and you're going are you kidding me like what is this you're looking for the cameras like what is this one of those shows and it's a joke and they're gonna come in on me and then she says to you you know what in fact everything that's mine is yours you can use my homes the memberships i have the corporate jet it's all yours and you go this is incredible And then she says, but I called you here today for a purpose. We're about to embark on a project that's bigger than any project we've ever embarked upon before and I want you to partner with me in it. I want you to work directly alongside of me in this. You ready to get after it? Ready to get after it. And you leave. And then you leave and your boss continues to call you and everybody you talk to that's not your boss, you go, you will not believe this. I relationally connected with my boss on unbelievable, we're like, This now, we are unbelievably close friends. She gave me access to her whole office, everything that she has, and you talk about all the privileges of your relationship with your boss. And every time your boss calls, you're like, I can't believe you did that. This is so amazing. I love our relationship. I love all the stuff you're giving me. Well, after about a month, what's your boss gonna say to you? Hey, you're missing one big factor of this. Like you originally got called into our office for a purpose. And I don't want to marginalize the fact that my relationship with you is not fake. It is so real. And the privileges that you're here to experience are absolutely real. But you cannot forget that a substantive part of this relationship is the fact that we are going to work together. That we're in this together. That is going to make our relationship even tighter and that's going to show you what life is really, truly about. We're like that. So many Christians forget what their salvation is for and they relish in the privileges of which we should. There's nothing that defines our life with God more than our relationship and our walk with God. But a substantial part of our relationship and our walk with God is our partnership with God in what he's up to. That if we are gonna follow Christ and walk in his ways, We walk in his ways of a purpose, this purpose of being a blessing. Five times in the book of Genesis, five times at least, God tells Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the long-term purpose of their election and their calling, including that of their descendants, is that through them, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Never once in the Bible is someone blessed but to be a blessing. Never once is somebody given privileges, experiences, relationship, blessing, but to be a blessing. We are to be mediators of this blessing. The Bible talks about it as we are meant to be priests. There's a passage in the book of Exodus, the next uh, Book over, you don't need to turn there. Exodus 19 verse three and we look at another biblical character who's very uh, popular and important named Moses. Moses goes up to God and the Lord calls him out on the mountain saying thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I have bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What did God do? for the Israelites in the face of the Egyptians. He saved them. So here's what he's saying. You saw how I bore you on eagle's wings. Listen to the language that he speaks about. This isn't just saving you. It's very relational and very magnificent. Bore you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. Don't you dare misunderstand what I'm saying. God's bringing you and I to himself To be called sons and daughters of God is no minor thing. It is the major thing. But then he goes on Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. If you're willing to live in this relationship, live in the relationship. If you're willing to live in this covenant, I mean, it's a little like two people that get married on stage who make their vows. It's like, then live in your vows, live like you're married. Don't say the vows and then act like you're not married. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession along all my peoples for all of the earth is mine. (laughs) Like Psalm 24. And you shall go to me to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are my words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So those are the, the... the words that are spoken to the family of God in the Old Testament, what are the words that are spoken to the family of God in the New Testament? So he just said you're gonna be a holy nation and a royal priesthood. So in 1 Peter chapter two, as Peter tries to talk to us about what it means to be God's family, the church, he says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. That, so that, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's the same phraseology that God's family is brought near to God to be, we'll use just this phrase, a kingdom of priests. So what's a priest? A priest is a mediator, one who represents the people to God and God to the people. So here, the Bible's telling us that to be a part of the church is to take up the calling to be a mediator, to bring all of the peoples of the earth, all of the peoples in your office, all the peoples of your family, all the peoples of your neighborhood, all the peoples of our city, all the peoples of our nation and world before God in prayer and supplication and saying, God, might you do something among the people. Among humanity, might you fix that which is broken in their hearts, in our office place, in the marketplace, in our country, in the world. Being a priest is to bring the people for God, but it's also to bring God to the people so that the church, the family of God, what you are called into, what your salvation is for, 1st Peter 2, 9, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of this brokenness, of him who called us out of this darkness and him who brought us into the marvelous light that in what we say and in what we display, in what we speak with our mouths and what we do with our hands and how we treat people that we may say, let me show you the light. This is the way for humanity. This is the truth. This is the life. That's what the Israelites were to do Every morning and multiple times a day, they got up and they recited the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is no other God. The gods of all the other peoples are fake. You are the one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was Yahweh, the one true God, and they were meant as a people to declare to the world, this is the way, there's no other way. This is the truth, there's no other truth. This is life. And then Jesus comes on the scene. When everybody's um, broken down, asking questions, and he's the enigma of all enigma, and he's hated by many people, and he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He is taking up in him very self the role of Yahweh, the role of God. And he's saying to the church, follow me. So therefore, the church's role, like we said, in what we say and what we display, is to say to the world, this is what God intended for life to look like. This is what it means to how we view ourselves. We believe that life is found in living our lives for the goodness of other people, the blessing of other people, and we believe that in their blessing, we too find ours. That's the truth. So in a world that spouse the lives that you go after what is yours, you get what is yours, number one is you, we say no, that's all upside down. Actually, the way God made it to be right side up is that I would live my life on behalf of you and that my joy is bound up in your joy. That's what the Bible would define as love. That the church is meant to be a people that displays to the world, this is what marriage relationships look like. This is the way children respond and obey their parents and parents don't exasperate but love their children. This is the way wives love their husbands and husbands sacrificially serve their wives to make a true covenant. This is the way employees respond and honor their bosses even when their bosses may not deserve Honor, this is what race relations look like. This is what business practices look like. In a world that says business is for the purpose of profit, we say no, everything is for the purpose of people. People before profit. The church is meant to be that community because we are the community that's meant to live in the midst of a world of death and darkness. We are meant to live the light of Christ who's redeemed us and restored us and freed us from the sin of self-centeredness to live in the life of others-centered joy, of others-centered delight. We are called for a purpose. God never blesses us but to be a blessing. But we're called in this together. We're called to be in this together, which many of us miss as well. So turn over to Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 17, God is making this covenant with Abram. And he begins to tell him that his name will be Abraham. And he says to him, your descendants are gonna be as numerous as the stars of the sky. When you thought I was gonna work through other means, I'm actually working through a bloodline to communicate very clearly, you will be a father to many. What is he saying? I am making a family that when you are called into this family, hear this, everybody in here, understand this, God is calling a people, not individuals. He's making a family, not a person. You become a person or you are a Christian in reference to the church, the people. He's calling us in this together. So last night um, I was setting up food for the family and we have four kids and I said, so what do you guys want to eat? And this is like if you went out with your friends. If you don't have kids, it's the same thing when you go out with friends. So what do you want to eat? One's like macaroni and cheese. The other one's, no, I don't want macaroni and cheese. I want pizza. The other one, I want chicken. So I'm like, this is chaos. I'm tired I'm going to preach tomorrow. I have things to do. So I'm like, I just go to the refrigerator and I start pulling out macaroni and cheese, chicken, pizza. And my wife's like, what are you doing? Like, they said they wanted macaroni, pizza, and chicken. So I'm going to make them that. And she's like, you're serving Satan. (laughs) And, And she didn't actually say that, but that's basically what she was saying. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, do you know the problems you're gonna create for us if you do that? You can't just give them everything they want. She's like, if I end up here one night making dinner, which she does more often than I do, if I sit here making dinner one night, I'm not gonna make them four different dinners. Like, you are giving in to the devil. Don't give in to the devil. And then here's the statement. When we serve dinner, we serve a family, not individuals, We're feeding the family. And if you don't want to eat with the family, don't eat. Starve. That's very much the way the Bible talks about the church. You aren't saved as an individual. You are saved into a people because God is making a people. When God called Abraham, he called him to be a people, a holy family, if you will, that would display to the world the blessing of God that we just talked about. So I think it said February 8th, uh, we'll do baptisms here at Redemption Arcadia. And many people, when they get baptized in many churches will display what they actually believe about salvation and they'll display wrongfully that they believe salvation's just ending on you. Because they'll say something that's very true and I've said it many times and I've taught people to say it. The baptism, this is true, don't hear me. It's true, but it's more than this. So they'll say, baptism is an outward declaration of an inward reality. Because if you didn't know this, um, even in the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel that's given this call by God ultimately fails time and time again. They fail in their calling. They fail in keeping these covenants, these partnerships with God. And so God comes on the scene. He says, I'll make for you a new covenant And in this new covenant, Ezekiel tells us that he's gonna take out of us the primary problem, which is our hearts, that we have hearts of stone that are stuck on self and therefore being stuck on self, stuck on stupid, right? So we have hearts of stone that are stuck on ourselves and he says, I'm gonna take out of you a heart of stone and put into you a heart of flesh. And I like to think of that as a heart of flesh that beats for God and beats for other people. I'm gonna give you life, a heart that beats for me and beats for other people. And baptism is this celebration that God, by faith in Jesus Christ, has given us new hearts. It's a confession of what God has done on our behalf. But church, it's not only a confession. Baptism historically has always been an entrance into the body of Christ, and even more specifically, into a local church. That I am a part of a people. It's a family initiation as much as it's a confession of what God's done in your life. It's the fact that I'm now a part of the family of God that can only be expressed in local form. So it's being a part of a community and then it's also a commission. So it's confession-oriented, it's communal, and it's a commission. I'm sorry, it's a commission. When you get baptized, you are saying, I am, have been blessed by God to be a part of the people of God for the life of the world. So now you understand that getting up here to be baptized, you better take seriously because it's an ordination service of sorts. You're being ordained into the ministry of God. Together, together with the people of God, because we are called into this communally. And you see that in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 very clearly that this is about a family, a people. Titus 2 says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself individuals. No, he doesn't say that. To purify for himself a people, for his own possession who are zealous to do good. So you're called as the possession of God as his very people. He's calling a people who would be zealous for good. Yes, God works in your life individually to put you into a community who exists for the life of the world, to extend God's blessing to the world. There's a guy um, many of us really like here and actually this quote is on... um, what would be the equivalent of a business plan, this prospectus for the South Scottsdale church plant. And this guy's name's Leslie Newbegin, And he talks about what the best hermeneutic of the gospel is. Hermeneutic just means your way of understanding, your way to interpret. And he says, the best way for the world to interpret the gospel, that means interpret Jesus and the good things that he's done on our behalf and on behalf of the world, that the greatest hermeneutic of the gospel, he says this, I am suggesting that the only answer the only hermeneutic of the gospel, the only way to understand Christ and his good news is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live it. The only way. That God has set it up that there's no plan B. The plan A, that the world may extend and see. The world may have extended to them and see the blessing and the goodness of the good news is in congregations of people who believe it and live it. The awesome part about that is when we believe it and live it, we experience joy unsearchable, unspeakable. It isn't slavery, it's delight and joy and it's experiencing the fullness of our humanity and the way God has ultimately allowed us to be. This idea of human connection is no minor um, thing. And one of the things I always believe is that if we live in the world, real world, we'll see this as true even outside of the scriptures. This idea that human connection is that important, this idea of us being together is that important. This week I read an article in the Huffington Post that was titled something of this. Um, it was titled some pretty much this way, if not exactly. The cure to addiction or the answer to addiction is not what you think. The ultimate answer to addiction is not what you think or the ultimate cause of addiction is not what you think. It, it plays itself out like this. Most of us think that addictions are caused by chemical dependency. And there's this picture the guy talks about in this article of this famous study where there's two rats in a glass box And there's water, two water things. One is um, infused with heroin and the other one's just pure. And basically as the rat goes to the heroin, it just keeps going back to it until it ultimately kills itself. Well, he says what most of us don't know is that there's also um, a study that was done some years later where um, a guy that was looking at the research said that isn't sufficient research. And they said, why? And they said, because the rat's isolated in a glass cage with nothing else, what if you put a better environment around this rat and other rats in the midst of it? And the results were not one rat died, not that none of them got addicted and not, he's not saying that there's no element of truth in chemical dependency, but fundamentally, he said what changed the rats that they then begin to do study even in humans and ask questions like when somebody goes in for a hip replacement, And they're given pain medicine that's basically heroin. How is it that they leave and go into a world with all of this community and don't end up on the streets getting street-based heroin? How do they get away from it? And ultimately, the idea is human connection in which the author of the article presents his thesis as this. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's human connection. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's human connection. Now, here's the question, church. What prevents us from that type of human connection? Because all of us have addiction. All of us sin is, a, is a, an addiction worship. I mean, it's, an, it's false worship. It's an addiction to worshiping the false thing. That addiction fundamentally is a worship disorder, if you will. All of us have that, and if a huge part of this answer is human connection. What the Bible teaches is absolutely true, that a group of people together moving in the same direction for the causes of God, living life that he meant us to live is not an option to our Christian life. It's fundamental to your individual thriving in your spirituality and for the world to ultimately see it. In all of our good, obedient things and in all of our failings. Because what fundamentally prevents the human connection that we all crave that we think is the answer fundamentally to so many of the problems in the human world. Well the Bible would say it's sin, this stuck on self answer to sin. And you sit there and go, man, that's an amazing picture of the church, but I've never seen it. I've never seen a church like that. I've never seen Christians like that. How do we ultimately get there? And this is where we'll end, is love. In being love, that we're called by love and to love and that we can love other people. And you go, oh that's great. Human connection happens in love. Just love, it's not that easy. That's true, it's not that easy. But when you've been loved radically, you see this. So I'm gonna end with this. This is a picture um, from Luke chapter seven. In Luke chapter seven, um, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house. And the Pharisees, um, at best, thought Jesus was an enigma. They couldn't figure him out. At worst, they hated his guts, um, and we're constantly trying to trap him. So he invites Jesus over to his house. And as they're reclining at the table, which at that time reclining at the table didn't mean like lazy boy reclining with your feet up. It was actually, you'd lean forward and your feet would go back. So the table was in front of you. You'd almost sit on your forearms and your feet would go back. It was also custom at that time that when leaders um, ate together, that they would allow different people to sit on the very edges and kind of watch them. But they had to stay there. But in this scene, um, there's a woman of the city which just to get straight to it means slut likely prostitute sorry if that offends you but that's what the passage means Um, that a woman of the city crosses all types of barriers to get to Jesus so Jesus is sitting across from Simon the Pharisee his feet are back and it says this woman falls at his feet and is just profusely weeping to which she's saturating his feet with her tears and then she begins to take off of her neck her most prized possession which is an alabaster flask of ointment which by any commentator or historian of the day would have said was very expensive perfume, which would have marked been her most prized possession both financially. It's probably the most valuable thing that she had and it also was the mark of her profession and she breaks it. In turn saying, I'm giving it all. And she mixes this ointment, this perfume with her tears and she begins to wash Jesus' feet with tears and perfume with her hair. Now, if you humanize this just for a minute, that's a humiliating thing to do because everybody's looking at you. Everybody's looking at you knowing who you are. You've shown your perfume. Everybody knows you're likely the city prostitute. And that's what Simon, the Pharisee, said. It says, he says in his heart, if this man knew who this woman was, he would never, ever let her do such a thing. And then it says, Jesus, knowing the thoughts of Simon, looked at Simon and said, Simon, I want to tell you a story. Now, I know who Jesus is, but I gotta think if you somewhat know who he is, you're going, oh crap, at that moment. Like, what is he about to say to me? He's just, judge this woman. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. There's two people with with debt. One has a huge debt, one has a little debt. If the man in whom they are indebted to comes and forgives both of the debts, which one, Simon, will love him more? To which Simon says, obviously, the one whom was forgiven the larger debt. He said, Simon, you're correct. And then it says, Jesus turns to the woman but talks to Simon. So get what I said before. The woman's behind him at his feet. Simon's right here. He turns to the woman but talks to Simon. What is that? (laughs) Like, what is that? I think it's exactly what you think it would be. He's identifying with this woman who no one else is identifying with. This woman of the city he's identifying with her as she has just made a total fool of herself by cultural standards and in turn he's turning his back on the one whom everyone went he's the religious one he's the authority he's the spiritual one and in fact looks at the woman while talks to Simon and here's what he says Then turning toward the woman he says to Simon do you see this woman I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins are which, which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now let's end just with this. There's no possible way. This woman got that vulnerable with a man who she didn't believe loved her that much that she was safe enough to be that vulnerable with. And there's no way that woman leaves that experience and looks down her nose at anybody. You want to know what creates human connection? Love like that. You want to know what creates love that's that's that radically other-centered? being loved by a God who said, greater love has no one than this, then he lays down his life for his friends. The experience of the grace of God enables us to fulfill our purpose and commit to human connection inside God's family for the life of the world. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would know at the deepest, deepest of levels how much we've been forgiven. For those who've been forgiven little will love little. But those who've been forgiven much, love much. And God, we know in what we're about to celebrate that we are a people who've been loved much. In Christ's name we pray, amen.